Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 163. It's January 5th, 2016. Happy New Year. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. The markets have certainly got off to a turbulent start for the new year. We're going to talk about that in this episode. And I think really the best way to talk about what we can expect in 2016 is to go back and review the year 2015. So that's exactly what I plan to do. I want to review with you not only my thought process for 2015, but specifically where I traded and how it worked out. And I think that that's going to be important to you because through the first quarter, if not the first half of 2016, I think it's going to be very reflective and reminiscent of what we've seen for the last six months with a few exceptions. And we'll talk about those as we go. Before we get started, I do want to thank all of you that went out to iTunes and made an effort to provide this podcast with a rating or review. The number of reviews there have gone up uh, well over 10% just in the last week. So I appreciate those of you that have taken the time to do that. You know, we have a really vast, large audience. And yet, when you look at the reviews in iTunes, I still think there's only somewhere around, you know, 140. And so when you consider that an episode of this podcast is downloaded anywhere from, say, five to 10,000 times, you know, we only have 140 reviews, eh, that means a lot of you aren't saying very much. Well, that's okay. I understand. But I do especially appreciate those of you that have taken the time to give us a rating. I read all those. I take them to heart. I look at ways that I can take that feedback and make the podcast better. I've gotten some suggestions that I'm also going to do through 2016. And and some of you have mentioned that you're talking about the podcast and social media. Maybe you mention it in a LinkedIn post or you, uh, you post about it or reference the show or talk about your favorite episode on Facebook. Well, I'm going to take the time to to go out this year and lurk in those social medias and try and recognize some of you that have done that. So don't be surprised if you receive a reply from me thanking you for, for promoting the podcast. In any case, the audience continues to grow. It's all through word of mouth from you and the loyal listening audience. It's very humbling, and I thank you sincerely for all your support. So, hey, let's get on to the main topic here and let's talk about what's going on, not only with these first few turbulent days of 2016, uh, but the main point that I want to get across in today's episode, and this is why I've entitled it the, the way I have, I've called this episode, Active Trading is Not Irresponsible Trading. And that's the key takeaway here, is that you'll recall that I call myself a trend trader, I call myself a swing trader, I say that I'm an active trader. Well, when I start talking to you about what I did in 2015, you're going to see that I made very few trades. And when I say that, what I mean is very few trades that purchased either individual stocks or individual exchange traded funds. And for the better part of the year, I was mostly just 50% in cash. So the main lesson learned in all this, and this is what I've learned over the past 30 years, is that you don't have to trade. In fact, that's one of the great advantages that you and I have because we're not large institutional investors. We don't have to go out and churn a stock just because we're being told to do so by our upper management. What you can do and what I do as an independent money manager is to look at the market and determine times that look like they have higher uncertainty than normal or when we feel that there's thin ice out there or red flags being waved saying move forward with caution. When you're in markets like that, I believe you're better served to just take your time, 
move forward cautiously, and if that means staying in cash or not making trades, then so be it. Active trading does not mean irresponsible trading or going out and speculating just for the sake of speculating because that just doesn't make sense. The reason the financial industry does that and promotes that is because they get paid primarily on the volume of the trade. They want a lot of transactions to occur because that's how they make their revenue. Well, that's counterintuitive to you. The more trades you make, the more costly that is. And so even though I talk about being a swing trader, being an active trader, being a trend-following trader, that doesn't mean that I'm out there trading on a frequent basis when I don't think it's profitable. Or if you'll think back to what I talked about in just the previous episode about alpha, if I think that I'm in a market that could provide me with a gain, but I think that it comes with a low or a poor alpha, meaning that there's more risk than there is reward, then I'll just sit that inning out. I don't need to play. I don't need to swing at every pitch. Let me explain this by reviewing with you the overall themes of the trades that I made during 2015. Now, a couple things here, and this is a legal disclaimer. I'm not going to be providing you with exact information that would claim to have produced any particular return for last year. The Securities and Exchange Commission has a very stringent way that that information has to be advertised. And so I'm not claiming to be doing that in this episode. I'm just going to talk to you about overall themes. Obviously, if you read my blog, if you listen to my podcast, you heard me talk about these things. So you can go back and verify that what I'm saying is what, in fact, I actually did. The other thing that you have to remember is that I'm not a mutual fund. I'm an investment firm. I offer portfolio management services to my clients, but it's done on an individual basis. And so unlike a mutual fund that would invest in one particular asset class or mutually pools all their investors' money together and then makes all those purchases with that money, that's not what I do. What my firm does is I advise clients and then I trade in their portfolios for them. So not all of my clients' portfolios are exactly identical. It depends on what their goals are, what type of objectives they want to achieve. It also depends on the level of risk that they're willing to take. Now, having said that, because I am an independent firm and because I have a particular business model that I follow, I generally only offer my services to a particular type of client or a a group of clients that fit into a fairly tight risk tolerance group. And so there is a common theme that runs throughout all the accounts that I manage. And so while all my client portfolios may not be exactly identical, they do have a common theme running through them. And that basic theme is what I call congruent investing. And that's the fact that I don't invest my clients in anything that I wouldn't purchase for myself. So if I think that Apple is a good buy and I plan on putting my money in Apple or Google or Facebook or whatever, if I'm making that trade for myself, then most likely I'm making that trade for most or all of my clients because I think it's a good trade for them as well. Now, again, depending upon their objectives, their goals and their risk tolerance, they may be exempted from a particular trade that I make or I may purchase more for one client and less for another Again, because of their particular situation. 
So when I review these trades with you right now, I'm not saying that this was 100% done for all of my clients or in exactly that percentages. I'm just giving you an overall hypothetical theme for what I traded in 2015. Again, you can go back and review the blog, listen to previous podcasts. You can verify that these are the type of things that I was talking about back then. But the main point that I want to make here is having you understand my trades and why I did certain things in 2015, and why I'm likely to do similar things as we go into 2016. Because I think these markets are very similar for at least this first three months, if not the first half of 2016. So as we began the year in January of 2015, my assessment of the market was that the bull market was getting old. It was the third longest in history. It looked like it was starting to top out somewhere around that 2100 level. Although we were going on to make new record highs in the S&P 500 every week or certainly every month, and that was getting a lot of hype and a, a lot of uh, FaceTime in the media, the thing that I noticed about that was although we were making new highs, the magnitude of those highs was decreasing. So it looked like the market was starting to top out. It was starting to roll over. We were also starting to see more volatility creep into the market than had been uh, basically since the end of, of 2011. I think if you look at the S&P 500 on a two-year moving average, the S&P 500 never broke that two-year moving average from about the end of 2011 until the summer of 2015. Now, that was a long time to go above that average to not have any major pullbacks. A lot of that, I think, had to do with the quantitative easing program from the Federal Reserve, particularly the money that they rolled out in quantitative easing two and quantitative easing three. But we were starting to see that although there was a lot of money in the system, it was a diminishing return. The market wasn't going up as high as it previously had. And that led me to be concerned, particularly with the U.S. market. And so where I was seeing opportunities at the beginning of last year was primarily outside of the U.S. I was going there because I thought that other countries would benefit from the strong U.S. dollar, which would make exports from those countries less expensive. And then also lower oil prices would be beneficial to companies and countries and economies that weren't major commodity producers. So for that type of reason, staying away from uh, commodity producers and oil producers, I wouldn't be investing in markets like Saudi Arabia or Russia or the northern part of Europe where they do get a lot of the revenues from oil. I would be focusing on more of the service and products companies that export into the United States, places uh, primarily like Japan, Germany, Ireland. Um, I also went into Mexico, which is a little counterintuitive because a lot of the revenue coming out of Mexico is oil-related. But I, and for that reason, I stayed out of Canada. But the reason I did favor Mexico was that it seemed that China was losing some of its low labor competitiveness and some of those businesses were moving into Mexico. So I did put Mexico in my portfolio. Um, I even went into places that I normally would have avoided, uh, more of the stagnant, non-growth economies like France. I added that to my portfolio. And I made these purchases in these countries by buying exchange-traded funds. Now, I tend to go with big brand-name exchange-traded funds because I'm looking for investments that provide me with a lot of liquidity. So I'm looking at the bigger, larger funds. The ones that I might mention here um, are not the only ones out there. There's a lot of other options. I'm just telling you what works for me and what I used. So, for example, when I went into Germany, I, went, I used the fund EWG. That's Echo Whiskey Golf. 
That's an iShares fund that specializes in companies in Germany. When I went into Ireland, I went into the iShares ETF that does that one. That's called EIRL. That's Echo India Romeo Lima. When I went into Mexico, I used the exchange-traded fund EWW. That's also an iShares fund. So remember my rationale here. Strong dollar, low oil prices. I want to go to either companies or countries that are favored by that trend. And so because the market I did feel was choppy, I avoided U.S. companies. I avoided individual stocks in particular and focused on these large targeted exchange traded funds. During that first quarter of 2015, I did want some U.S. exposure. So in addition to those foreign funds that I mentioned, I also put some money into some regional bank stocks and to insurance companies. And I did that, again, because I felt that these companies, things like insurers and in particular regional banks, small regional banks, they're going to be less affected by the strength of the U.S. dollar because they don't derive their income by operating overseas or by exporting products. Right, They're U.S.-centric and, in many cases, mid-cap stocks that are dealing in you know middle America, fairly insulated from problems with commodities or strong dollar. I invested in those categories primarily with three funds. The banking stocks I used were IAT and KRE. Those are regional banking stocks. And then for the insurance companies, again, rather than investing in individual companies, I just went with the exchange-traded fund KIE. Oh, while I'm thinking about it, one other fund that I would mention with Europe, I also went into a European hedged fund that was focused on European, large European blue chip stocks, but had a hedge against the U.S. dollar getting too strong. That's a Wisdom Tree exchange traded fund, and that ticker symbol is H-E-D-J. Now, when I talk about being a swing trader, being an active trader, this is the type of thing that I'm talking about where I just mentioned to you a number of funds. In fact, I think there were about 12 or 13, so about a dozen positions that I decided to jump into in January of 2015, January and February of 2015. Now, I want to point out to those of you that are trading with just very small sums of money, you know, if you only have a thousand or ten thousand dollars, it would be hard to invest on a practical basis in this many funds. And so that's why I always encourage you to first be a saver and then be an investor. Because if you have just a small amount of money, if you only have $2,000, you don't want to split that up because of transaction costs over a dozen funds. And so you're only going to pick maybe one or two. Well, you may end up picking one or two of the funds that don't perform as well. And so you just don't have the money to diversify. And that's why small investors get hurt. That's why I encourage you not to jump into the stock market unless you have a significant amount of capital to where you can diversify your holdings. And why that's important is, is, you know, I just listed 12 or 13 ETFs that I was trading in. Of those, four of those funds, when I sold them, were sold at a loss. Now, they were sold at a very small loss. Two of those four were sold at a loss of well under 1%. One of them was sold at a 1% loss, and the other one was sold at about a 3% loss. That was the Mexico fund. And again, I, I took a uh, a wild shot on that one. I thought that Mexico may be favored, but at the same time, I knew that Mexico would be hurt because of the collapse in oil prices, because Mexico is a large exporter of petroleum products. And so 
that was my worst of those 13 trades. I lost about 3% on that particular stock. But again, I was invested in 12, 13 of them. So it didn't matter if I lost a little bit of money on one stock. So if you don't have enough money to broadly diversify yourself, you can get yourself into trouble because nobody has a crystal ball. Looking at those ETFs, the two that did the best, one of the regional banking stocks, one of the regional banking stocks was up almost as much as 9%, where the other regional banking stock, which was very a very similar exchange-traded fund, it was just banks in a different lo geographic location of the country, one of those was up almost 9%, the other one was barely up 1%. And then looking at all the foreign countries I invested in, Ireland was my best performing trade, and that came in uh, at about over 6% return, where if you would have asked me when I first made that trade in January, I would have told you that Germany and Japan would have been my two top picks for uh, my, my uh, overseas countries, and Ireland was the top performer by a long shot, particularly when looking at Germany, because Germany was only up like 1%, Ireland was up like 6%, Japan was somewhere in the middle at about 35 I tell you this just to give you an idea of the diversity of returns that you can receive from a particular trade that seems very, very common. You know, again, I'll highlight this. The two regional bank exchange-traded funds that I traded in, two very, very similar exchange-traded funds that, that focused on the almost identical sector of the economy. The only difference really was the region that they specialized in. And even with that, there was a lot of overlap. It was one of these was just an iShares exchange-traded fund. The other was a Standard & Poor's regional bank fund. And yet one went up over 8% and the other barely went up 1% over exactly the same time period. There was no way I could have predicted that. And in fact, that's why I split the money that I wanted to dedicate to regional banks. Uh, when I saw these two comparable exchange-traded funds with high liquidity, that's why I did segregate my money into these two funds because I thought there could be a difference, but I never in my wildest dreams thought it would be that much more of a return. Now, my intent when I bought these stocks was to hold them for at least the first quarter. I didn't really buy them till the uh, end of January, the beginning of February. And I ended up closing my positions in all the trades that I just talked to you about before the middle of March. So the average length of time that I held these stocks, these 13 or so positions, was only 28 days. And I committed a little bit more than, say, 75% of my portfolio to those stocks. Now, it wasn't evenly weighted across all those 12 or 13 exchange-traded funds, but for the most part, you can say that 76% of my portfolio was split between those. It was held for about 28 days, and the overall return, more or less, hypothetically, that it, that it came back with, and again, I just do this to illustrate a point, it made about 2.8% over those 28 days. Now, again, I want to point this out because remember in the last episode, I talked about alpha. I talked about not only the importance of getting a return, but getting a return or a profit in light of how bad of a risk you're encountering to, to receive that profit. So in this case, I saw overseas markets that were going up. When I felt that that trend was starting to, to change a little bit, when it was breaking its 10-day moving average, I just sold those positions. I took my nearly 3% profit and I and I ran with it. I wanted to lock that profit in. I was going under the old adage of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Now, I did sell a little bit too early. Those markets that I talked about, many of them went on to, to get higher highs for the next two or three months. 
I chose not to jump back into those markets again because I started to see a lot of uncertainty. I started to see more turbulence. And I was happy that I had over a 2.5% gain on over 75% of my money and that it was made in such a short period of time because you have to remember at about that time, the interest rate on U.S. 10-year treasuries was probably only about 2% or less. So I had at this point locked in a 100% guaranteed gain because I already had it. I already sold the stocks and it was done. And I had exceeded what would be a 100% guaranteed return rate by investing in 10-year treasuries. But instead of having to tie my money up into 10-year treasuries, I only had to invest for a period of about 28 days. That's really the essence of swing trading. And what my goal would have been last year, really in any given year, is to do what I just told you and replicate that four times a year. So I like to trade from, you know, periods from quarter to quarter. So for about every, you know, two to three months, if I can make a two or 3% gain by investing large amounts of my money where I feel that there's a minimum risk and I can get, say, a, a just a 2% return, people would say, well, why would you just want a 2% return? Well, if I can do that in markets that look like they're certainly trending up and I can get a 2% return and I do that four times a year, that's an 8% return. And I could achieve that 8% return without putting my money at major risk and by staying out of the markets when I feel that there's too much uncertainty. That's how you not only get the return, but you also get the alpha. So that was my, again, my intent for 2015 is my intent for just about any year. Well, what happened? I got out of the markets in March. What was concerning to me, particularly starting in April, was we saw the small cap stocks starting to underperform. And so the Russell 2000 breached its 100-day moving average around the end of April, beginning of May. That occurred for about two weeks. Uh, Then it went on. It skyrocketed. It went up to hit an all-time new high. But within a day or so, or certainly within a week, that fell apart. It was back down below its 100-day moving average, and it stayed down below that 100-day moving average, uh, except for a very brief period of time. Just this past November, it was up above that 100-day moving average for about two weeks, and then it's been back down below it ever since. When you see small-cap stocks underperforming like that, That's a concern. That's a red flag that shows me that there's thin ice out there. And that gives me reason and causes me to think about whether the reward is worth taking the risk. And for the most part of 2015, I decided not to take the risk. The performance on the S&P 500, although not as drastic as what we saw with the small cap stocks, it was still very similar. The S&P was getting very choppy. We, We saw it breaking through its uh, 100-day moving average uh, on, a, on a daily basis from about uh, the middle of March till the first week in April. It recovered from that, but started penetrating that 100-day moving average again in early June. And although it did hit a peak in about the middle of July, it was very close to its 100-day moving average. At that point, it did breach down below that 100-day moving average. We saw the flash crash at the end of August. That resulted in a double bottom that we saw in the end of September. And although the markets recovered from that, we see today that we're, you know, back down below the 100-day moving average. Now, my concern carried over, too, because when I looked at the S&P 500, although it wasn't as choppy and as volatile as the small cap stocks, it certainly was having some difficulty staying above its 100-day moving average. And that was uncharacteristic for this market. Really, the S&P 500... For the previous 
18 months to two years over that period, it was very infrequent that the S&P 500 breached its 100-day moving average. And then all of a sudden, you know, starting in early 2015, we saw that happening on a regular basis. We saw that 100-day moving average on the S&P 500 starting to converge with the 50-day moving average. And to me, that was a bad sign. That was a sign of the market topping out. It was a sign that the risks were more than I was willing to participate in. And so consequently, what did I do? Well, I waited. Although I watched the markets every day and I was ready to constantly pull the trigger with a watch list of stocks, I refrained from doing so with a few exceptions. And let me, let me tell you about those exceptions. Towards the end of June, I saw an opening and a possible breakout in agricultural commodities. The exchange traded fund that I looked at in this case was DBA. This is a fund that has its money invested in a broad range of agricultural commodities. Uh, pretty much everything from sugar to soybeans to live cattle and cocoa and coffee, um, you know, lean hogs, winter wheat, the, the whole gamut of, of commodities. And if you remember throughout 2015, agricultural commodities performed just like all commodities, meaning they performed very poorly. They were at, you know, multi-year, if not decade lows. Well, in mid to late June, it looked to me like perhaps agricultural commodities had bottomed out. They'd really been trading in a very flat range since March. So you had about a four-month period here where, although they were still trending lower, they'd seemed to stabilize. And it looked to me that if it could break out over a certain point, which at that time was right around its 50-day moving average, if it could get above that and then go to the 100-day moving average, and if this could incur with a lot of high volume, with a lot of people jumping into the trade, that I felt that we could see perhaps a significant jump, a big increase in the price of agricultural commodities. Now, when I look at a breakout trade like this, I go into it with an expectation of getting at least a 20 to a 35% return on my money. This is the type of a trade that doesn't come along frequently, but when it does and you feel confident in it, you jump into it and then you watch it closely. It's not like that sure thing where you think you can get a 2 or 3% over a three-month period. It's much more risky than that, but you watch it closely. You hold it tight to your vest. And so consequently, if this kind of a trade works out for you, you can make a significant amount of money over a very short period of time. I point this out because even though I mentioned about how cautious I was and how I was holding very tightly onto that profit that I'd made during the first quarter and I was very jealous and protective of that, I was still willing to take a risk when I saw the right opportunity. This, based on the charts and the trends and all the patterns I was looking at, it looked like the right opportunity. And so I pulled the trigger, I made the trade, and I not only made the trade, but I made it with a significant amount of my portfolio. I put a good 50% into that trade. Now, I want to stress again here, that's a lot of money to put into a specific trade. I wouldn't put that much into an individual stock. But remember, this wasn't one stock. This was an exchange-traded fund where the risk was spread out over a magnitude of, of commodities. It was spread out over all the agricultural commodities, from cotton to sugar to soybeans to fat belly hogs, winter wheat. The whole thing was tied up in there. So if the price of coffee just plummeted, I wouldn't necessarily get hurt because I was also invested in like amounts in corn and sugar and other things. 
But again, I want to reinforce the key point that I want to make here is although I was being very cautious in 2015 when the right opportunity presented itself, right when I got that pitch that was right over the center of the plate, I wasn't afraid to swing at it. I pulled the trigger. I made the trade. Since I had such a large percentage of my portfolio in this one trade, I was watching it extremely closely. I was watching it almost as a day trader would on a really, you know, minute by minute basis. And I actually got out of that trade in two days. And the reason I did that is because although it broke above its 50-day moving average, it didn't move up as high to the 100-day moving average as quickly and with as much volume as I wanted to see. And I have this all explained over at investablewealth.com. If you go back to that time period around the middle to the end of June of 2015, look at the blog post that I put out about that time. There were at least two blog posts that I talked about this. And again, the reason I point this out is because I want to stress to you that when your trade isn't working, you get out of it. When it broke the trend line or didn't exceed the trend line that I was looking forward to hit, I didn't make excuses. I didn't second think about it. I just cut my trade right there. I said, this is not performing the way I wanted it to. I have a lot of money invested in this. I'm pulling out. And so I liquidated that position within two days. It was sold at a profit. I made, I don't know, maybe a little less than half a percent on that particular trade. Now, remember, I had about half of my portfolio in that. So half a percent on half a portfolio. It came out where my overall gain after uh, you know transaction fees and things, it was maybe only about 20 basis points. Oh, incidentally, let me, let me go back. When I talked before about getting about a 2.8% a return on those trades that I'd made during the first you know 28 days or so in, in the beginning of the first quarter, that was with 70, say 6% of my portfolio. So the real bottom line profit was about 2.2%. Let me illustrate that for you with simpler math, just for those of you that might be having a hard time following along with that. Let's say that you invested 100% of your portfolio and got a 20% return, then your overall return would be 20%. But let's say that you only invested 50% of your portfolio and got a 20% return on that, well, then you would have only made a 10% return. I just point that out because when we talk about math and numbers, it can get really hard. I'm not a math wizard or genius. That's why I like to use spreadsheets and have all the math calculated out for me. Now, ah, but I digress. So again, key takeaway there, even though I was being cautious when I saw an opportunity, I was willing to swing at the pitch. I was willing to commit 50% of my portfolio. But again, when it didn't work out with just a day or two, when I felt that the trade wasn't going well for me, wasn't going in the direction I wanted, I sold, took my small little meager profit, and I ran with it. I locked it in. Now, the next major trade that I made uh, occurred at about that same time. It was right towards the end of June, and the trade I made there was investing in the U.S. dollar. I did it through a couple different ETFs, but the main one that I'll mention to you is the one that's called UUP, that's Uniform Uniform Papa. I invested in the dollar at that time because that was right when the dollar was getting back up above its 50-day moving average. It had had a really good run uh, really since of about 
2014 all the way through the beginning part of uh, 2015. I had traded the dollar previously in, in 2014. I'd gotten out of it and then that trade got crowded. It had started to fall apart. So probably around April time frame, April of 2015, I got back into it towards the end of June as it looked like it was, you know, coming up and again, breaking out up above that 50 day moving average. Now, in trading with the U.S. dollar, it's a more stable asset, so I wasn't expecting, you know, over the period of the next month or two to be able to make 25% on this type of a trade. This was a more secure, safe place for me to put my money. I was putting my money into this trade because I felt as long as the dollar could stay up above its 50 and 100 day moving average, it was likely to at least stay neutral and possibly offer a 5% on the upside. And then on the downside, it was likely to maybe only fall apart 3 to 5%. So if the markets remain good, I could pick up a couple percent. If things fell apart, I may lose 2 or 3%, where if I was invested in the S&P 500, if things fell apart, I could lose 20 or 25%. So this was just a safer place for me to put half of my money to try and pick up a few percentage points. I made that trade and I have consequently held on to that trade ever since. And so right now I've been invested in that for a little over six months. It's up approximately 2.8, you know, close to 3%. Again, that's half of my portfolio. So, you know, you get a return on that one of roughly, hypothetically, around maybe 1.4, 1.5%. This, in my mind, was a safe harbor trade. It remains that way. Right now, I'm continuing to hold it. I may sell it at any point. If you remember just a couple episodes ago, I mentioned that I didn't like the way that it was performing. I thought it was underperforming interest rates. Well, that has since changed. Over the last three or four trading sessions, it's up back above its 50-day moving average and it has overperformed the yield of the 10-year treasury. So that's a good sign to me. I don't know how long that'll last, but I do watch it on a constant basis because I have a significant amount of my portfolio in that, and if I think that trade's going to fall apart, I'll pull out of it. Now, the last big trade that I made in 2015 was my historic Walmart trade. This is the worst trade that I made all year. I bought Walmart stock about three months too early. I was trying to get into Walmart ahead of earnings before it gapped up. I was trying to get into it at a point where I thought that it had been oversold, that too much bad press had, been, had come out about it. I felt the fundamentals were sound and that it would most likely go up. I was 100% wrong. For the next three to four months, the bottom continued to fall out of that stock. It went on to make lower lows. I um, I did hold it, however, because one reason was I didn't get out of it soon enough. About two weeks after I had purchased it, right when its earnings came out, it gapped down uh, to what I felt was a, a too low of a level for me to sell at that point. Be again, because I felt the fundamentals were strong in the in the company. That was a, a good and a bad decision. Had I gotten out then, I would have got out at a minor loss. I decided to hold it. It fell apart and went down, I don't know, probably more than 20% over those ensuing weeks. It stabilized after the flash crash, but then fell apart again around mid-October. And since then, it's been building a long, flat base that I think is now starting to turn around. So I did hold Walmart too long. This is one of those stocks that I was willing to take the risk in holding because I don't see a danger of it going out of business. And then I do feel that if it can get up above its 200-day moving average, 
it'll at least be a market performer. So over the period of, you know, maybe 12 to 18 months, I'll just collect the dividend on it. It pays about a 3.2% yield. So that's a pretty nice annual rate. I'll collect that dividend. Once it's stabilized up above that 200-day moving average and it starts to be a market performer, I'll be able to sell it at a small profit. One thing I really want to point out here with Walmart, the reason that I did hold on to it, the reason I was willing to suffer through all this pain, is that I had only invested about 5 to 10% of my portfolio into this stock. It wasn't 20%, it wasn't 50%, it wasn't 100%. It was only 5 to 10% depending upon the particular client that I bought it for. So again, if you have a stock that, that falls apart 20%, if you're only 5% invested in it, you only lost 1%. This is a form of risk management. I can't stress it enough. I've done previous podcasts about risk management. Go back and listen to those, but that's a real-world example of it. The other thing that I'll point out about Walmart, if I didn't already own it, I would be purchasing it. Now remember, in this podcast, I can never offer you advice or recommendations. I'm not telling you to buy Walmart. I'm just telling you that when I look at the fundamentals of it, I think it has bottomed out. I think that entire retail sector has been oversold. And if you look at Walmart over the last week, you'll see that it has a great deal of relative strength. It's been outperforming the, the general market. And it's been in this long consolidation now, depending upon how you look at it, from anywhere from two and a half to a solid two months. So that's a good amount of time for a, a big blue chip stock like this to go through a bottoming process. I do think it's a good buy, and so consequently, that's why I do continue to hold it. Now, right now, I'm down about probably 14% on that individual purchase. And again, when you say consider that was 10% of my portfolio, that puts me down about 1.4%. I can live with that. That's risk management that I can tolerate, particularly on a stock that's paying a dividend of over 3% a year and one that I think is building the right side of its base and is moving up and in the right direction. So when you sum all this up, I call myself an active swing trader. And yet when you look at the number of trades that I made last year, I only purchased about 15 stocks and 12 or 13 of those I purchased within the first quarter of the year and only held them for 28 days. At no time during the year did I have more than 76% of my portfolio invested at any one time. And again, that was only for about a 28-day period. For the vast majority of the year, for about you know six months of the year, I had 50% of my money in the U.S. dollar, which to me was a stable, safe harbor type investment. Now, all that said and done, when you add up all the gains and the losses and you look at what percentage of the portfolio it was, Again, I do just do this hypothetically just to give you a ballpark idea to illustrate the point where you can make a small number of trades over a small percentage of the year to keep your money at limited risk in a market that you're concerned about, a market that you think is starting to top out. And so at the end of the day, when it was all said and done, that hypothetical portfolio maybe would have grossed around 3%, maybe a little bit less, again, depending upon how much was invested in Walmart, how much was in the cash position, but roughly somewhere around, we'll just call it 2.73%. Now, you have to remember, I'm a money manager. I charge a fee to manage people's money. My management fee is 1% per year. So if the portfolio generated 2.75 or 3% return gross, that meant the client was only going to net about a you know 1.7 or a 2% return. 
which is certainly nothing to write home about, but it does keep up with inflation. That's after all expenses are paid. And then when you look in light of a couple things here, you know, how did the overall market perform? Well, nominally, if you look at an ETF like SPY, which tracks the S&P 500, nominally that was down almost 1%. It was down 0.8 something percent. Had you had your money invested in that all year long, you would have gotten the dividend that it pays. That's right around 1.98%. So roughly, if you had bought the S&P 500 through the SPY ETF and held it for the entire 12 months of 2015, you would have made about 1, maybe 1.2% return on your money. Now, you had your money at risk 365 days a year for the entire 12 months just to get that you know, 1.2% return. The way I look at it, you're better off swing trading because the bulk of my money was not at risk. That's the way I look at the markets. That's what I'm going to continue doing as we move into these first three months of 2016. I'll be keeping at least 50% of my money probably in cash. The other 50% will be in a safe harbor type investment, perhaps like the U.S. dollar, maybe something like the 20-year treasury. As we go forward and I see where the strength of the dollar is, you know, I'll adjust that position. I may go 100% to cash. If another opportunity comes up where I think agricultural products are going to break out or any of these trades that have been way oversold, then I won't be afraid to jump in and take very significant positions. I think that 2016 is going to be more turbulent in 2015, but at the same time, I believe that 2016 is going to be an excellent year for picking out specific stocks and specific indexes. Now, the general indexes may not do so well, but I do think that this is going to be a really good year for swing trading, and there could be some opportunities to hit home runs. Now, this episode's gone long. There are two more things I want to cover here real quickly. What I talked to you about in these 15 trades or so, this was my overall broad portfolio of client money that I manage. There were a couple other trades in there that I made with my own money that I felt were too risky and too speculative. Uh, in, and in particular, this was making trades in DNO, that's Delta November Oscar. That's the ETF that shorts oil. I felt that it offered opportunities there, but was way too risky for any of my clients. I did put some significant money of my own in that. Uh, to give you an idea of the volatility of this stock, I held this position, I believe, for around three or four months. Again, it is documented over at investablewealth.com. If you look around uh, the end of April, I think I bought into the position for maybe the second time, ended up selling it around maybe July. So I do talk about it there, but just to give you an idea of the volatility and why I say that I didn't want to commit any client money to this, there were times when my position was up close to $100,000, and I'm not talking about the account balance, I'm talking about the actual profit. The profit was up in the high $90,000 range, and there were also times when that trade was at a twenty-five dollars or a $27,000 loss. Now, at the end of the day, when I sold it, I think I ended up selling it for somewhere around forty-five dollars or $48,000, something like that. That was the profit. But it was a highly, highly speculative trade, nothing that fit the profile and the temperance of any of my clients. So that was something I was willing to risk my own money on, but wasn't willing to risk 
client money on. I, I think that's important. I wanted to point that out to you. And then finally, the other thing that I wanted to point out was, and this is looking back with, you know, 2020 hindsight, I did miss an excellent swing trading opportunity to get back into the S&P 500 with fairly minimal risk from around October to December. There were some really good times when in early November, you could have made a, a really nice 5 or 6% by being in solid S&P 500 blue chip, blue chip companies, just one ETF. You could hit a really nice double or triple on, on that one play. Again, looking back, 2020 hindsight, I was too risk averse. I missed that opportunity. One of my major concerns for staying out of the market at that time was that we didn't have enough guideposts to look back at. If you remember on the S&P 500, we only had really one good pullback since 2012. That was in October of 2014. That only lasted about two weeks, and that was driven because of fear over Ebola. And with all the QE money floating around and holding up the markets, there weren't enough recent examples to judge that flash crash of August and then the subsequent double bottom that we got in September. There weren't enough of those pullbacks in recent history for me to draw the right trend line that I felt comfortable with. And so with the market floating so closely, just either above or below its 200 and 100-day moving averages, I didn't feel that the risk was worth jumping into the market for. Now, the good news going into 2016 is that we do now have more data points. We have that double bottom from August and September, which we can use to draw a trend line into at least the third quarter of 2016. So again, that's another reason why I feel comfortable of making more trades in 2016, even though it may be more volatile. I at least have enough downward data points to extrapolate from. Okay, so wrapping it all up, here's the key takeaway. Active trading is not irresponsible. Speculative trading, and the, the big point I want to make is that in 2015, although I may have only made 15 or so active transactions, every day that I watched the market and I made the decision not to trade, that in effect is placing a trade. I decided to keep my money in cash. That is the best, safe, viable way that I know of to trade in a down or in an uncertain market. So don't let the financial industry hoodwink you into thinking that to make a trade, it has to involve some type of a transaction. Sometimes the best trade you can make is to just keep your money in cash. And with that, again, I wish everybody a happy new year. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano. Wishing you the very best returns.